Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Isaac Smith. He's the executive director at Whole Wellness Therapy. He's the psychotherapist. The website is wholewellnesstherapy.com, W-H-O-L-E as in whole. So Isaac, welcome and thanks for coming. Thanks a lot for having me here, Richard. I'm very honored to be here and I'm looking forward to, to talking today. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and what led you to psychotherapy and establishing this center. Yeah, for me, I actually, I never wanted to be a therapist when I went into my social work program, you know, my goal was to, to work in hospice and I didn't want to touch therapy with a 10 foot pole. And what ended up happening is um, my first two internships were, were both in, in counseling roles. Uh, the first one working for Catholic social services. And the second one was at a, a methadone clinic. And I really fought tooth and nail not to go there because I had my own ideas at that time around addiction. And, but it was, it was really at that job and in that role where I, I sort of fell in love with getting to do work that I view as very sacred and important and also working with folks that were struggling with issues related to addiction and trauma. So that sort of began the trajectory and I did end up working in hospice and a number of other things in between there, but I, I kind of kept going back to therapy in my mind. You know, it's such a privilege to get to sit across from people and hear their story and for them to trust you with that information. And to support them and and kind of figuring out what path or paths are right for them. So, so what kind of group do you um, do you speak to most often, and what are their issues? Um, you, you mean like what kind of folks do I tend to work with? Right, exactly. And what you know, what what core issues? What kind of people? Old people, young people? You know, what issues, etc. Yeah. So I I in my so I've been in doing therapy in, in one form or another uh, for almost a decade at this point. And I've worked with um, all ages. Uh, I have uh, teen clients to adult clients to older adult clients. Um, and I think sort of naturally what happened for our practice is we started seeing a lot more folks um, coming in with issues related to trauma and not just like what we would call those big T traumas, like maybe getting into car accident or experiencing some sort of assault, but those little T traumas is what we'd call them. But, you know, the trauma that happens for folks over a lifetime, depending on, you know, how they grew up or the environment that they grew up um, in. And so our practice is, as uh, in the area that we're in uh, really does focus a lot on, on helping folks, you know, live the life that they want, even if they have this trauma in their past, or it's still showing up. So anxiety, depression, trauma, addiction, related issues, uh, relationship issues, grief and loss. The cool thing about our center in particular is that we have, it's very collaborative. So we have a number of therapists who ton of diversity that they bring to the table, um, just their life experience, what they're passionate about and what they're interested in. So we learn a lot from each other, but we also have a number of practitioners that, you know, specialize in one thing over the other, whether that's couples work or anxiety related stuff, grief and loss, like I said. All right. So what are some of the issues that you're seeing, let's say in teens in particular, 
Yeah. Um, with teens, substance issues are always really present. Um, what I think we've seen tremendously, in, especially in the past few years, is a dramatic increase in things like anxiety and depression. I often kind of think like teens are sort of like the, the canary in the coal mine at times for, for, for issues that might be present in the family that haven't been addressed. And so when it comes to that work, I, I also really want to involve the family in that process as much as I can. But yeah, teens, I think, are, are, are in this really exciting stage of figuring out who they are and what's important to them and what their values are and who they want to be. So it's a lot about like their identity. And that's hard stuff too, because their brain is still developing, right? We know now from neuroscience, right, that the brain fully develops by the age of 25. And so teens are kind of like working out, um, building that adult part of their self uh, while still, you know, having a teenage brain that sometimes can get in the way. So why do you think anxiety is so prevalent among teens? Is this a new phenomenon or is this something that's always been there? That's a really good question. I think it's always been in there. It's always been there in one form or another. I I think like this collective trauma and anxiety that we've experienced together as a global society as it relates to the pandemic really had an impact. You know, this is totally anecdotal, but I do some work in something that's called dialectical behavior therapy. And that's a very much uh, that agency is focused on working with teens and families. And, you know, one of the, the parents was talking to us about how their school was saying, you know, they used to have about 80 kids that were in, in independent study in this one school over the course of the year. That's translated into 1800 kids that are in independent study because of these anxiety related issues. What does uh, independent study mean? Is that homeschooling or is it just their course of study is uh, customized? What does that mean? Yeah, it's it's basically like doing your schoolwork from your home. Yeah, okay, not like homeschooling, so, but it's through this. So people are, okay, so a lot of people were forced onto Zoom, et cetera. But now that uh, that happened for so long, you're seeing a lot of what? Families requesting turn to that in partial or in whole? I think a lot of it is teens experiencing like the anxiety of being in these very busy and often chaotic environments. Right. And they haven't, they're not really used to it. Right. Um, and there's still, you know, this looming threat that we're all dealing with and in one form or another. And so I think, you know, kids are, are anxious about those things. They're anxious about, you know, the changes that are happening in our world. And a lot of them feel powerless as, as, as far as how to, to approach those big issues. So I don't, I don't know if it's one, be hard to pinpoint it as one thing, but I think it's like a combination of, of things and shifts that, that are just happening as a population. Well, what are some, com I mean, without revealing personal details, what are some stories in common that you hear from a lot of the people that you work with, a lot of the teenagers? Yeah, it is a, it's a lot of social anxiety, like this fear of being evaluated, right? Like this fear of, of being judged. And again, in this really important identity formation stage. I think school is a lot more demanding these days too. And there's this pressure to achieve and to do well. I think I would say the social anxiety part and the, at least in the area we're at, like kids really feeling pressure to achieve, um, to figure out where they're going to college and what they're going to do with their life, you know, but as soon as they're a freshman and just figuring out who they are, I mean, that's a, a big task in and of itself. And, but relationship issues and all of that, that that shows up at this crucial stage in their development also create a ton of anxiety, their sense of belonging, hmm. community.
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Well, also, you know, for teenagers, if they were caught up in pandemic-related stuff for two years, that's a big chunk of a teenager's life versus someone, let's say, that's like 30s or 40s or 50s. So I guess it makes sense that they would be very heavily impacted because, again, that's a lot of time for someone that age. You know, someone younger, it's even more time in terms of development. So mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense that that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that, again, school has gotten more difficult or is it just the resiliency of teens or the, uh, you know, the constant lower, medium or high level pressure to perform is, is just harder for them now because of what they went through? That's a really good question, uh, Richard, which I don't know if I have the answer to. I think it's probably a combination of all of that. And, you know, I, I, I believe that there are no real one size fits all approaches to, to doing this kind of work. In fact, like that's something I, I really push against. And with that, you know, each person is different. So something that, you know, might, we might perceive as being like an easy task might be really difficult for someone else and, and vice versa. But yeah, if you, you know, learning to be social in an online environment is, is difficult. It's hard to do for some people over Zoom. There's an exhaustion sometimes that people have about being online for everything now. I think as a society, we, we really are craving like actual, real, authentic community and connection. And I think there are, if we zoom way out, there are you know, forces in play that sell us this idea of community and belonging um, that's really about making profit. Do you think it's a mistake to allow kids to, you know, to continue to do school from home? Is it coddling them? Do they really need it? Are they freaking out if they can't get it? Like, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it's coddling. I think it's what some of the kids need, right? They might need it for right now. And, you know, I believe that you know, a dialectical behavior therapy, they have this great saying that people are doing that. There's this assumption that people are doing the best they can and people need to do better. Right. And so I think it's about meeting people where they're at and also inviting them to um, explore some of those goals. And depending on what those goals are, you know, the obstacles that are getting in the way. And so it might be that what a kid needs is a lot more of that support and for the parents to actually get on board and say, yeah, you know what, if this is what you're needing, your mental health, your mental health is is really important to us. Then we're going to work with you here. And, you know, we are going to gently push you along the way um, to kind of move outside of your comfort zone a bit. Um, And, you know, as a therapist, my, my real philosophy and belief is that the only way out for, for most things that we face in life is to go through it. It's so easy to distract ourselves from all of our problems or the struggles that we're facing on a day-to-day basis. Um, the problem with distraction is it only lasts in the short term, and it, it, you can't distract yourself in the long term. Um, so it, it just it's only partially effective. So I think that's a case-by-case basis, and 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a, a coddling thing. I, I think re- people really need, yeah, to kind of have some space. Yeah, I learned a concept recently called moral injury. So if someone mm. is a a police officer for ten years and all they see is you know people lying to them and doing bad things, they they kind of get corrupted by seeing that. Or if someone was a prostitute, you know, how could they have normal relationships with people? Do you think there's any uh, form of moral injury that kids have? endured because of the pandemic and because of these conditions going back to this idea of trauma right i i believe that like trauma gives us this this rule book to to follow it gives us a set of rules to follow to keep us safe and this usually happens on a very unconscious level it's not like we're sitting there going oh my trauma gave me this rule or that rule but it could be about like hey don't trust anyone because when you've trusted people in the past this has led to you getting really hurt Right. And so people withdraw from social relationships and connections as a way to avoid pain. But then again, that might be getting away later when they really want authentic and deep connection and relationship. And so that rule that might have been very protective and, and saved them, uh, de- depending on what environment they grew up in, is now getting in the way. And so I think like, you know, you could, another way to think about it is like trauma gives you a, a pair of glasses at which you, you, you know, view the world um, and you can see, you know, somebody might do something that reminds you of a traumatic thing you went through. And then that's all you're going to see. So I think if we think about the pandemic as being this collective trauma that we all faced, that we all had to just react to, right? We couldn't prepare for it, but we had to react to. I think it's safe to say that that probably had um, effects on um, teenagers and and all of us that we're still figuring out, that we're still trying to understand um, how and and what are the long-term implications of this collective trauma that we've been through. Yeah, when you mentioned that, uh, you know, I'm sure it's obvious a lot of teenagers, you know, will use drugs. I guess, you know, if if someone's labeled as an addict, I'm sure that would really traumatize them. But, you know, how much are they traumatizing themselves by doing drugs, you know, whether it's smoking weed or you know, yep. something heavier and maybe becoming addicted or getting to the point where, like, in order to go to sleep, they need to get high or something so they can sleep. Or mm-hmm. in order to handle a social situation, they have to get high in order to be calm. Mm-hmm. What does that do to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I love what you said about the the label, right? I think the, the label can sometimes be really important for people right? Like if you go to a 12 step meeting, you know, identifying, you know, as, you know, an alcoholic can be really important for some people and it can be very limiting for others or limit people in general, because then they sort of see themselves as this one part of them, albeit it's been an important part or a part that's creative problems, but it's not the totality of who they are. When it comes to using substances, no matter what we consume, right? We have a relationship with it. And people don't use drugs and alcohol because they don't work. They use them because they work really well. And they and going back, they work really well in the short term. The problem is they often can create these long-term problems, whether it's like a full-fledged addiction or problems in relationships or health problems, you name it. And so you are right that you know, doing those things is harming themselves. And it's also been something, you know, for I've had some people that have told me drinking like saved me from suicide and if i come in there and i just sort of demonize the substance or the Mm. problem then i really miss out on understanding how that relationship right has really served them how it's been helpful 
how it's been adaptive, right? And now where is it getting in the way? So addiction is is kind of like your your lover and your best friend and your worst enemy and your your father or your mother all wrapped up in one thing. So to try to strip somebody from that relationship before understanding that relationship and really getting to know that relationship, I think can be really dangerous, especially if you're not helping someone cope in other ways or or especially cope in ways that are more connected to some of these long-term values that they might have. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, no, it gives a good perspective on it. I didn't think about that. You know, if someone tells you again, drinking helped them not commit suicide, then you're like, oh, well. Now we've got a potential addiction or bad lifelong habit, but mm-hmm. look what it did for them. So they're going to perceive it as it's just going to make it, I guess, entrenched and much harder to get rid of that habit because the mm-hmm. person will credit that, at least in their mind, of of helping them to avoid death. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. It it difficult. exactly. What about um, parents and caretakers? You know, I mean, everyone mm-hmm. has to deal with, you know, pandemic related issues. You know, as a parent of kids, like you not only need to make sure your mind is right that you could be there for your children. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's just too much of a burden for a lot of people if they were affected very badly as a parent. You know, how do they help themselves and help their children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I think been, that... Like, with, with the withdrawal of parental support that you see, emotional, you know, monetary, physical, is that making it worse? Like, I, like I, going back, I think one of the things that I saw during the pandemic and when we were all kind of like, you know, back in our homes all together. I think for some families, this is, they were able to distract from their problems through like busyness, right? Whether that's extracurricular activities after school or getting kids into gymnastics or this or that, or this academic program, like a lot of that stuff went away. And then we were sort of stuck with our, with each other. And I think for a lot of families, um, they had to maybe face things that they weren't willing or wanting to face until they now are forced to have the space to kind of look at them. And I think that a lot of the times, you know, parents get blamed for a lot. Uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, the, there's a great book uh, I just read by Dr. Gabor Mate called the, the Myth of Normal. And he talks a lot about this. I don't think that that is particularly helpful. It, it certainly can be illuminating for people that have experienced real lifelong abuse, right? So I don't want to minimize or invalidate that. But I think, you know, parents are also doing the best that they can and they can do a bit better. And I think that the place that they can do a bit better is to have that constant communication of of support and love for their children, to not make that warmth and nurturing side of them contingent on good behavior, right? So that, you know, you get all this loving acceptance, validation from me, as long as you're towing the party line. And when you're not, like I withhold all of that. In fact, I think that that's when kids need it more is when they're hurting and they look to uh, uh, us as adults and parents to really show them how to digest and, um, some of the things that we're going through. And I think that, you know, parents can be a, a bit more honest about maybe some of their own struggles in a way that doesn't, you know, burden the child by by sharing that. Right. But just in a way of normalizing our hu- our shared humanness. So I think, you know, I always encourage parents like, hey, you know, just pick up that phone and say, hey, just thought about you. Just want to tell you I love you. Send them a text. Check in with them about 
about things. We also respect their need for independence and how that's growing as well. So it's a tightrope walk, I think, especially in the teenage years. Yeah, and I would think single parent households right now, it's probably 10 times tougher on them because the parent may or may not have anyone to speak to, you know, another adult and they have to help themselves and help their children. And, you know, with the, with the increased stresses and problems, I could see that'd be a very difficult job, especially now. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Yeah, I had a single mom too, and I watched how hard she worked and all that she gave to, to try to make sure that we, we did okay. But I think, you know, it's particularly hard for, for parents that don't have supports or who have another parent that's maybe disengaged or that that relationship is not so good. So I have a lot of empathy for, for parents facing that situation. And I believe that they are trying their best. Um, Who is, um, do you see any therapists or any new ideas that seem to be particularly effective right now in our current environment that are helping a lot? uh, Yeah. I practice as a a, a relational psychotherapist And, and that means that, I believe that people are wired and what's driving all of us is a a need for uh, relationship and connection. And so I think that no matter what modality a therapist might use, right? So there's cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, there's dialectical behavior therapy was actually under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, There's narrative therapy, there's um, EMDR, um, there's all of these modalities. I think that they uh, are most effective when they're housed in a real authentic relationship. And so I think what we're sort of fighting against in some ways is, and this is normal, people come in and they want symptom relief, right? They're experiencing this anxiety or depression and they just want it to be taken away. I want to help them build some coping tools and strategies around how to deal with those things. And the uncomfortable reality is that no coping tool is going to remove those issues from somebody permanently. They'll come back. Like I have gotten quite familiar with my own relationship with anxiety, right? Like I used to think I didn't have it, but I do. And instead of it, like being in the driver's seat of my car, you know, I've learned to put it in the passenger seat at times or kick it to the back seat or the trunk. So I think that what we're trying to do, at least at our practice is is normalize being a human and trying to understand all the difficulties and the suffering that comes with being human and help people cope with some of these issues that they're facing with. But really to see themselves as as not the summation of their problems, right? Like the problems are the problems. This is an idea from narrative therapy. People are not their problems, right? The fact that somebody is struggling with an addiction is not the most important thing about them. It might be the most dominating thing, the most uh, oppressive thing in their life at the time, but it is not the most important thing about who they are. And I think my work is to help people become connected or reconnected with parts of themselves that have been walled off or lost, whether it's because of trauma or addiction or anxiety or loss, you know, whatever it is, is, um, help people see themselves for more than just that issue so yeah do you um yeah it's i don't know it sounds like you know again i'm an armchair psychologist here but it just sounds like um more group therapy may help you know it sounds like uh individual therapy i'm sure it always helps but more group settings you know uh mixing it in a bit more you know let's say you have a session a week uh, at least once a month you do a group type thing that may maybe that would help a lot i don't know you know, I really like that that idea, and I think that you, there's a lot of truth in that. I tell all of the therapists here at Whole Wellness Therapy, like, you got to have skin in the game. 
Like you have to be open enough in your work with people to being moved by them at times, right? To, 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 they're going to be in your mind when you leave at times, right? Have great boundaries around that, right? But to, to do a kind of therapy that, that allows you to be impacted by the client. So I think that relationship with, you know, I do mostly individual work and some, uh, some group work, um, but that, that the, everything I believe is about relationships. So when the first time that somebody reaches out to us to, to get connected, like the relationship starts uh, and the relationship can give us a lot of clues about what might happening, what might be happening in somebody's life or how they might be relating to others. And I think that what we see is that as the relationship, I think it's the most healing part of therapy that as that sort of unfolds, it now starts to translate to relationships outside of the therapy setting, right? Because like one of the, the, the secrets that I think is lost on people is that the therapy space being a confidential space um, is really one where you can try out a lot of things in a relationship that you normally wouldn't be able to, right? Like you can role play having a difficult conversation. You can practice like telling your therapist when maybe something your therapist has said, uh, lands the wrong way or that you fear that they're judging you or that they caused you harm. Like a good therapist should be able to take all of that in and allow that to happen because it can give us, it's there's so much richness that comes out of like being in that space. Hmm. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, who do you guys serve? Are you able to do remote work? Is it just in state? Like where, um, you know, if someone's listening, and they're getting good concepts out of it. That's great. But if they actually say, all right, I need a therapist. I need help. Um, mm-hmm. Where, what areas or what demographics or psychographics uh, do you help with? Yeah. So we work with all, all ages um, here. Like I said, we are primarily focused on um, helping people uh, overcome um, or kind of like learn to have a, a different relationship with the trauma or maybe the things that they consume, like if they're addiction issues, anxiety, depression, uh, grief and loss. Um, we do uh, both in-person work here. We have a location in Fair Oaks, uh, California, and also in Sacramento, California, um, in Midtown. And then we do a lot of um, remote work via telehealth, uh, all within the state of California, which is currently the, 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 the bounds, uh, legal bounds of, of who we can serve. I'd love to be able to work with people, you know, in different states and stuff, but right now we're only allowed to work with folks inside of California. For people yeah, that well, you, are, only, you only have like 45 million people, I guess, to potentially work with, so it's not very much. <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, for your listeners that are maybe trying to find a therapist in their, their state, there are a couple... Um, good resources. There's one called psychologytoday.com, which people can search for a therapist by their insurance or by private pay for folks that, you know, uh, it's a struggle to pay for therapy out of pocket and they need um, a, a sliding scale. There's a great site called Open Path Collective, which has a, a very uh, low fees for most people um, that can get those services. They can get them through their insurance Um trying to think if there's any other great resources um another good site is goodtherapy.com where you can it's similar to psychology today um and then um oh man no problem those are good resources so far yeah well Isaac, isaac um you know thank you for coming on the podcast and uh you know for writing these resources and entertaining these ideas and uh for what you do in general to help people and especially teens so again thank you for yeah. being here 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I like I said, I feel really honored to, to be on, and yeah, love love chatting today. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.